0: Hello and welcome to the Global Data Pod Research Wrap. I'm Nora Santivani, and joining me today are my colleagues from the China team, Gray Singh and Ting uh, So, today we're going to discuss a recently published research report uh, focusing on deflation in China and its spillover uh, to the rest of the world the past few months, what we've seen globally is the downward pressure on core goods price inflation intensifying. We've slown to just 1.9% annualized pace. And based on the latest monthly data, we could get down to a 0% run rate in the next couple of months. So this is very exciting news. Uh, there have been, of course, several drivers of this disinflation, including uh, the manufacturing recession we've had over the past you know, six to nine months that has weakened pricing power, the fading of supply chain bottlenecks more broadly. So these are generally well understood. But I think perhaps what's underappreciated is the significant role that uh, China has played, uh, both in the surge in goods price inflation last year and then the more recent decline. In the last two months, what we've seen is China's export prices uh, have turned negative. They're actually falling at a roughly 20% annualized pace on a three month basis through June. And in dollar terms, we're down something like 11% year on year. And these declines seem to be broadening across the export basket. They're also clearly being mirrored in material declines in the rest of the world's import prices from China. Now, before we go any further, I think it's good to take a step back here and maybe start with um, why is China in deflation? We started the year expecting China's reopening bounce to result in a small but positive inflation impulse. Instead, we're in a situation of deflation. So uh, Ting Ting, maybe you could uh, help help explain how China ended up in deflation.
1: Yeah, sure. Thanks, Nora, for the question. Yeah, you know that, uh, as you mentioned, uh, in the global context, we have the global supply chain normalization. And uh, earlier this year, when China reopened, actually, the rest of the world was slowing down. And uh, the boost to the global demand from China's reopening bounce was kind of outweighed by the boost to the uh, global supply. And, but more specifically for China's case, I think um, the deflationary pressure we're now seeing in China is more a consequence of the policy bias, which has been in place for quite a while. And uh, we, it is also quite evident uh, in the past few years during the pandemic. That is, it has focused mainly on boosting the supply rather than supporting the demand. That is, the policy support has been mainly on supporting corporates, supporting investment, instead of direct transfer to the households, which happened elsewhere in a lot of other economies, for example, U.S., um, Hong Kong. So the result we have seen now is that we are now having the recovery running ahead of um, the Uh, And the uh, demand, that is the recovery in production, uh, significantly better than the recovery uh, in consumer demand. Um, So in that sense, we are now seeing consistently a a gap between the uh, supply and demand, which have unscaled the uh, deflationary pressure we're now seeing, not only in the PPI, but also um, quite lately um, in the second quarter GDP deflator and also the um, CPI in July.
2: Yeah, um, that's on uh, our side on China. So, Nora, um, how do we uh, go about um, quantifying the spillover from China's deflation um, to the rest of the world? Um, and more specifically, uh, what would be the uh, estimated global spillover from um, the roughly 10% um, uh, price, uh, export price deflation uh, from China um, uh, to the rest of the world? And would that impact be different across regions?
0: Yeah, thanks, Grace. So we try to tackle this question uh, from various different directions, and uh, you know, one complicating factor to begin with was that um, you know many of China's inflation indicators, including its PPI export prices, they very strongly co-vary with global variables, including global commodity prices. And, you know, this strong correlation reflects uh, China's significance as a globally large importer, as well as the large share of processed uh, raw materials in its exports. So that made it a little bit difficult to disentangle China's disinflationary impact from these other global forces currently weighing on inflation. Now, to get a sense of whether China's export price shock has spillovers that are independent of these common global drivers, what we did is we regressed China's export prices on these various global factors, we found that the residuals or the changes that were unexplained by global factors were actually quite large and they were negative. So that was telling us that there is this deflationary China export price shock. We then looked at the spillovers more formally through a set of uh, well-specified regressions, VAR models. And we put in a range of global and domestic factors, again, allowing them to influence each other through various channels. Now, what we found here is that the sample that we took mattered quite a lot. If we looked at just the pre-COVID sample, then China's export price spillover was statistically significant only in EM Asia, ex-China and the Euro area. But if we look at the entire sample spanning the, span, um, spanning the pandemic, the response is actually quite significant across all regions. And I think this kind of goes to the earlier point that Ting Ting made, uh, the significance of China's role in the pandemic supply chain disruptions and the subsequent normalization. So, I, I think because both the normalization in supply chain pressures and China's export price deflation are fairly recent, the, the the way they impact core inflation happens with a lag. So, I think in the coming quarters, the impact from China deflation uh, will be still quite significant. This is what the the regression models are also telling us. Once the current supply normalization has run its course, then I think China's impulse to the rest of the world would probably return to this kind of pre-COVID relationship again, which is a little bit more uh, insignificant across the sample. You would still see a significant impact in the euro area and Emax. Now, looking at the the latest China export price uh, moves, which is roughly 10% uh, deflation, what the model is telling us that the spillover to the rest of the world, ex-China, core goods inflation would be around 70 basis point, roughly speaking, over the second half of the year. Now, in reality, it's not clear whether all of this can be classed as a shock. So I would say confidence in this point estimate is fairly low. But what we can definitely see is direct data on trading partner import prices from China are showing material decline. So that is giving us further evidence and confirmation that there is in fact a spillover that is quite significant. Uh, in the near term, if you look, for example, U.S. import prices uh, from China are falling at a 4% annualized pace. Uh, this is the steepest decline we've seen in at least a decade. If you look at your area import prices from China, they're falling at a 15% annualized pace on a three month, three month basis. So, again, these are very significant declines and they are suggestive of uh, you know, a fairly large um, spillover, at least in the near term. Okay, so I think another question I think when thinking about the spillover is how broad is the spillover across across products? You know, what does what, what is the composition of China's export basket? I mean, w- what are these products that are being exported, and you know, how acute is the deflation pressure across products? Is this quite narrow, or is it, or is it increasingly broad-based? Yeah, uh,
1: thanks, Nora. Uh, I think. Um the short answer to your question is that it's quite progressed. It's at least more progressed than um, before. So as for China's uh, export uh, basket, we know that for China's case, uh, much of the uh, China's exports uh, comprises of uh, processed trade is either for assembling or imported uh, materials. So uh, specifically, um, machinery and transportation products are account for around 50% of the total, um, which fits into the global or the regional supply chains, either in high-end technology, um, manufacturing, or autos. And the rest of the world also uh, purchased quite a large amount of the low-end consumer goods, around 20% from China, as well as some mechanicals um, and fabricated metal products. So as for the latest development around the export price, um. So it has now becoming more substantially uh, and also uh, more broad-based. Uh, initially, it uh, started from the upstream uh, sectors because uh, China's uh, upstream um, sector prices are more closely linked to the global commodity prices. Um, but now, we are now seeing it has translated into the um, continuous decline in the uh, middle and downstream processed materials and also low-end consumer goods as well. Um, Lately, um, the latest data we have for China's export price by product breakdown is still June. Now, now we have export price of uh, machinery and transportation have uh, reduced significantly from the peak last uh, October, uh, which was uh, around. 3% Three percent in OI basis. Um, so in that sense, we think um, now we are having more broad-based uh, decline in China's exports, which may transfer and translate into kind of more broad-based uh, spill over to the rest of the world.
0: Exactly. I think that's a really important point to make that this is this uh, spillover is broadening across the export basket. And, you know, while we don't have granular data on import prices from China outside of the ones that I mentioned already, the U.S. and your area, I think there's enough signs elsewhere as well that this is a broader phenomenon happening when, you know, when you look at EMs, um, uh, import composition from China. You see that they rely on China very heavily. For example, for chemicals and processed raw materials, especially places like India and Brazil, for EMACs and Central Eastern Europe, we see very large trade exposures to China in you know intermediate manufacturers. So I think this also argues for a quite uh, material impact broadly speaking. Now the other uh, point we should we should mention here is that the impact of uh, CNY weakness is reinforcing currently the this decline in import prices we're seeing across the world. For many countries, uh, the sharp depreciation of the CNY over the past year is magnifying this disinflationary impulse on on import prices. And it's it's driving down prices in local currency terms quite significantly, especially in LATAM and and Europe where these moves have been been most significant. Uh, All right, so maybe we should um, move to thinking about uh, where where to from here? How sustained can this export price deflation uh, be? And Grace, maybe you could talk a little bit about, you know, all these policy stimulus measures that are being put in place at the moment. Uh, it's clear that policymakers are reacting to the downshifting growth momentum. they are reacting to this uh, deflationary dynamic. Should we expect the overall policy mix in China to change going forward uh, to to stimulating demand more? Is this going to be successful in arresting this this downshift in growth and and inflation? Yeah, um, thanks, Nora. So
2: actually um, we have seen um, uh, recent data suggesting slowing economic momentum. Um, That is adding pressure on the um, deflation trend. Um, And to be fair, the government has um, turned um, towards a more uh, accommodative uh, policy stance um, to support domestic demand. So if you look at um, the um, political meeting in late uh, July, which has received a lot of um, market attention, um, the policymakers did highlight um, the support for consumption, um, especially in areas such as auto, home appliances, uh, tourism spending, catering, um, and so on um the uh, ndrc has issued um uh, 20 measures to support consumption um, although um uh- there has not really been mention of direct fiscal support or concrete measures to boost household income or to reduce precautionary savings. Um, The party and the State Council has also jointly issued uh, 31 measures to support um, uh, the private sector. And on the um, uh, crucial uh, housing sector, um, policymakers have um, uh, emphasised that we should ensure healthy development of the market, um, support household first-time home purchase and upgrading demand. So, with that um, um, policy tone, uh, going ahead, we do look for um, moderate uh, growth support um, uh, uh, measures um, uh, in the coming weeks and months. Um, so on monetary policy last week, we had the PBOC announced um, uh, earlier than expected policy rate cut, a 15 basis point cut in the one year, one year MLF. Um, uh, although the, year, the follow up yesterday with regard to the LPR rate, which is more um, relevant to um, uh, the um, uh, market lending rate, um, that was actually smaller than expected. We had 10 basis point cut in the one-year LPR. And for the five-year LPR, which is the benchmark for mortgage rates, actually there was no change. Um, Going ahead in the near term, uh, we look for a um, 25 basis point RR cut in this current quarter Uh, that would hopefully help to support the um, acceleration in the uh, issuance of special government bonds, which would likely uh, come up to uh, more than 1 trillion uh, yuan um, for um, the rest of this month and September. And that would be uh, you, be used largely to support infra uh, infrastructure investment. Um, they will also, the central bank would also likely um, continue to expand the structural monetary policy too, such as relending facility and uh, to support lending for targeted industry sectors. Um, indeed, uh, following the uh, rather disappointing uh, week uh, July credit report, last Friday, the um, central bank and other major financial regulators um, uh, had basically um, uh, met with major and um, policy and commercial banks, and they, um, again, emphasise the need to support uh, um, credit growth um, uh, for the real economy. Um, On the fiscal side, uh, our baseline um, assumes um. Uh, further and um, uh, quasi fiscal support uh, through um, the policy banks, and it is also possible that the central government might um, allow the provincial governments to use the remaining room from local government debt ceiling uh, to um, uh, somewhat mitigate the local government debt pressure in the near term, and for the housing market. We expect housing policy easing measures to be um, uh, for, uh, further measures to be announced in the coming weeks, uh, such as uh, the lowering of down payment requirement, uh, the relaxation in the definition of first-time home um, mortgage, which basically would enjoy a more preferential and uh, mortgage treatment. Um, also, potentially some uh, further uh, broader-based relaxation in home purchase restrictions. Um, uh, having said that, putting everything together, um, the risk at this point uh, remains that the policy support measures may uh, come in somewhat too little and too modest, um, especially given um, the ongoing headwinds from different mm. parts um, of the real economy.
0: Okay, so it sounds like no immediate change in this supply-demand imbalance that, that we're seeing uh, right now. And, you know, it feels very much based on what you're saying that this Uh, sort of deflation pressure, at least in the near term, can continue. Ting Ting, do you want to talk us through your forecast for uh, export prices over the next sort of six months? I I guess you're basing it mainly on the PPI forecast. Um, what, What should we expect going forward? Is deflation here to stay?
1: Uh, Sure. So as uh, Chris mentioned so far after the political meeting and also some follow up uh, measures or policy which has been announced, uh, we do not really see the policy shift uh, from uh, supply to uh, demand to to happen yet. And we do not really forecast them to happen uh, anytime soon. So in that sense, we think the gap between the uh, domestic demand and supply will take time to narrow. So in that sense, we think we're going to have a prolonged uh, PPI and export price. Deflation through mid of 2024, and recently we know that the slide in the export price has been more significant than that implied by the historical relationship between PPI and mm-hmm. export price. So we think that might be related to um, the um, exporters' uh, kind of kind of relatively more aggressive uh, efforts in lowering the export price given the slowing external demands. Uh, so. Um, Currently, I think the uh, good news is that um, it seems like the trough of the um, PPI deflation that is in OI terms uh, is already behind us. So we have 5.4% OIA um, deflation in PPI and it narrowed to 4.4% in in july so uh, our baseline looks for ppi uh, deflation to gradually narrow further uh, into middle of next year and um, but given there is a kind of three months lag uh, in terms of just from uh, transmission from ppi to export price and we think the current quarter may mark the trough of the china's export price uh, so putting everything together we think um, the uh, deflationary pressure either in terms of the ppi or and the export price uh, may begin to gradually fade uh, um, from current quarter and uh, the may gradually narrow going forward, but may still uh, stay in place until middle of next year. And we'd not really expect it to turn from a drag uh, into a lift anytime soon.
0: Perfect. Okay. And would you say, so this is the baseline, both of you, would you say risks to this forecast start to the upside, to the downside in the near term? Grace? Yeah.
2: So, um, I guess uh, in that regard, um, the most important factor still goes back to the growth outlook. Um, And here the key concern is um, the housing market. Um, We have seen um, the loss of momentum in housing activity since um, April um, and the recent um, kind of focus on the stress for Country Garden uh, and the spillover of the shadow bank um, sector and LGFVs uh, are worrying. So our current Uh, baseline has now changed uh, on the housing market from a weak form of stabilization to a double dip scenario. Um, So we are looking for, for instance, real estate investment to decline more than 8% this year, new home sales will fall 10%, new home starts will fall 25%, and uh, land sales will be down 20%. And also at the same time, confidence amongst uh, private entrepreneurs um, as well as amongst um, uh, households and home buyers um, still remain stuck at soft level. So it is um, overall quite a challenging task to support the um, uh, recovery in um, private confidence and therefore private investment and household consumption um, as well as uh, the stabilization on um, housing market um, and even though we have um, discussed about the um, uh, policy support measures um, coming through especially in recent weeks um, the more concrete uh, policy details and also the pace of policy implementation um, still uh, seem somewhat um, uh, slower than what the market had been hoping for, and therefore um, uh, that might somewhat drag at uh, the growth picture. And uh, so, if you look at our growth um, uh, forecast, our baseline is looking for some sequential pickup in domestic economic activity uh, in August and September. Uh, but if Policy reactions um, remain um, muted, and uh, if the spillover from housing market correction um, uh, it, uh, further intensifies, for instance, um, the trigger liquidity stress in the trust industry or further feed through uh, to LGFV stress, then the risk to our growth forecast could be biased to the downside in the near term. Um, so, in if domestic demand outlook turns out weaker than our current baseline scenario, uh, that would potentially uh, 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 further drag on a general pricing power on both the CPI and PPI front. So the um, ultimate and the um, moderate um, sequential recovery on PPI, for instance, as uh, Ting Ting was referring to earlier on, um, that could um, actually face some stress if domestic demand conditions um, uh, come in weaker than our current forecast.
1: Yeah, thanks, Chris. That's pretty uh, pretty clear. So, Nora, um, putting everything together, uh, how do we see um, whether China's deflation is going to um, pose some downside risk to our second half, either global or uh, EM inflation forecast? Yeah,
0: I... I would say it does pose downside risks. You know, it's it's unclear how much of this China export price deflation impact is already embedded in our economists' bottom-up forecast. But I think given the surprising nature of the move, given the intensity of the move, given that it's increasingly broad-based across export products, I think it's likely to be a source of downside uh, pressure that's certainly going to help push uh, global ex-China core inflation uh, down further in the second half of the year, potentially below our bottom-up forecast, which is currently 32 three. Actually, we had already revised down a little bit, so maybe people are starting to incorporate this China uh, deflationary spillover into their forecast. And I think even beyond the third quarter into the fourth quarter and into early next year, it's certainly going to be something that tempers any upside risks. Uh, in terms of the, the pass-through and the timing of it, you mentioned that PPI deflation might be nearing its trough, but let's think about lags, right? There's a three-month lag from PPI to export prices. There's another three to 6 months lag between China export prices to global core goods inflation. So we're really talking about another at least six-month period uh, where China export price deflation is going to be um, a meaningful disinflationary impulse. We see it directly in the trading partner import price data across products across countries. So I think it's uh, safe to say that combined with the fall in China's trade-weighted currency, uh, this is something that is, uh, is significant. It's still gathering uh, steam uh, and it's going to be with us for uh, at least another few months. Okay, that's probably a good point to end there. Um, it's been uh, really fun working with you two on, on this research note, and we, I think we have some very interesting uh, results from it. So hopefully our readers will take time to go through the research piece. Uh, thank you to both of you for joining me, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in to the Global Datapod Research Wrap. Uh, we look forward to continuing the conversation on the next episode. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to J.P. Morgan research reports related to its content for more information, including important disclosures. 2023 J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved. This episode was recorded on August 22, 2023.